0: My name is William Minor, and this is The American Immigrant, the podcast about immigration in America. My guest is Kate Morrissey. She's a reporter on immigration for the San Diego Union-Tribune in San Diego, California. Today, we are going to focus on a few immigration issues affecting Southern California that Ms. Morrissey has been covering, including Haitians facing deportation in the wake of the recent hurricane, an anti-bullying law enacted to combat Islamophobia in California schools, and fears within the San Diego Filipino community about applying for immigration benefits. Ms. Morrissey, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, The Department of Homeland Security has said it will continue with its plan uh, to resume uh, the deportation of Haitians, uh, despite the most recent hurricane, which has killed, um, at this point, hundreds of people, if not more, Um, in addition to the devastation that still exists from the the earthquake that occurred almost uh, about seven years ago. Based on your reporting and discussions with people, how do Haitians uh, in the the San Diego community feel about this?
1: Well, so um, most of the Haitians who are here have fairly recently arrived. We um, started seeing uh, an influx of of Haitians coming actually from Brazil, which is where they had been living um, since the earthquake. Brazil gave quite quite a few um, work visas to Haitians to help them um, get back on their feet following the earthquake in 2010. But since the World Cup and the Olympics are all over, they um, they don't have as many job opportunities as, as what we're hearing. And so they're, they're coming here to try and get work. Um, so most of the people who, are, who have arrived here are are fairly recent arrivals, just within the last several months. And so a lot of them are still getting up to speed on how our system works or what uh, what it even means. We're still hearing about people um, arriving in Tijuana, hoping to, to cross into the U.S., who haven't heard that deportations have been resumed. So um, I, think, I think for most of the people here, it's something that they're still uh, getting up to speed on.
0: It seems that the earthquake... Uh, from 2010 as well as the recent hurricane has caused widespread devastation and people have left the country and um, found their way to new countries um, to to make a better life. Um, What's the actual prospect of these people going back to Haiti?
1: Well, so uh, the ones who have been living here, who were living here prior to uh, this more more recent migration, they are uh, mostly protected under a uh, temporary protected status, which was um, put in place after the earthquake, and that has not changed. So for the ones who came right after the earthquake, they should be able to stay and, and continue sending, uh, sending money back to Haiti, which is actually, uh, I read a, a fairly large portion of the the money that comes into Haiti is from people who are working in other countries, um, for the ones who, to are more recent arrivals that are, that are facing, facing the, the recent de- deportation announcement, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say exactly what, what it looks like at this point without being on the ground. You know, I've, I've spoken with, um, with people who were working there prior to the hurricane who were saying, you know, like there's. There's a pretty um, dire economic situation going on there that the, the GLUD, which is like the local currency, is actually um, weaker to the dollar than it was um, when when these people left in, in 2010 after the earthquake. That The economy's actually gotten a lot worse since then, and they say some of that has to do with the um, instability of the political system because um, they haven't had elections in a long time, uh, or they had they had elections, but they were found to be uh, fraudulent. And so they uh, were supposed to actually have elections again uh, just this week, but um, because of the hurricane, those have been postponed again. So there's this sort of interim government that is not uh, functioning at full speed because it's an interim government, and so that's causing a lot of, of questions for businesses about what's going to happen. And so they're seeing um, a lot of economic struggles, so there's,
0: there's definitely a lot going on. And I think that brings uh, us to kind of a very crucial question in situations like Haiti, which is people have to balance out uh, the fact that they have family members in Haiti. They would prefer to be in Haiti, but the the actual prospect of living there and um, making anything of your life can can sometimes seem very daunting if not impossible from the people that you've spoken to what is their ultimate goal do they want to stay here or do they ultimately want to go back when they have the opportunity to do that
1: the ones uh, the ones I've spoken with have had pretty bleak outlooks on uh, having the ability to go back and and be able to sustain their, their families they are pretty clear that they, they want to work. They think they have opportunity to work here. They don't think they have opportunity to to work in Haiti or, or make uh, enough money to take care of their families there. So, uh, And, I you know, I said, that, you know, one day, would, would you want to go back? And they said, we don't think that that's ever going to be a possibility. You know, like it's, it's not even, um, I guess the, the idea of that is so far off them
0: from what, from the reality that they know that they're not even entertaining that as a, as a hope. All right. All right. Let's, uh, I kind of want to move on to another issue here, which, which you've been doing a lot of work on and, and which is kind of, um, fascinating to me, especially in the current uh, presidential election in California, there was recently a a, a a bill enacted an anti-bullying bill um, it, throughout the state of California, which was in response to a reported rise in a lot Islamophobia in school. So I'm I'm not going to ask you to directly comment on the election, but how does this bill work? What 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 does it require schools or parents or teachers to do? Sure. So
1: the the bill mostly affects. Uh, Schools from the state level. So it requires the California Department of Education to assess school districts um, providing resources to staff relating to the bullying and that those resources are specific to um, the types of bullying that can happen based on religious affiliation. Um, And I think the idea is that they would have resources for even, like, specific religions and, and the kinds of bullying that can happen for them. Um, one of the things in the report that I think you're, you're talking about, which came from the um, Council on American-Islamic Relations, they found that I believe it was 55% of um, Muslim students in California reported experiencing some type of bullying because of religious affiliation. And um, They also found that, especially for the students who wear the hijab, the the discrimination goes even further and they feel like their teachers are also not stepping in to help, they feel like the administration is also not stepping in to help because of their religious affiliation or perceived religious affiliation. So it requires um, the department to sort of monitor that access to education, school materials for staff and resource materials for staff. And then it also, as a second tier, um, requires our state superintendent of public instruction to keep an online list of resources and support groups. So, in in the case where the school isn't doing anything to help the student and the student's family, also know what resources are out there and can reach out to different support groups or reach out to different different people who can who can then proactively go to the school and say, "Hey, what are you guys doing?" You know, so that they the students and their families know where they, where they can go as
0: well. What type of bullying was going on? What type of reports were coming out from, from students?
1: Yeah. So like I, like I said, the, the Council on American Islamic Relations uh, survey found that 55% of California's Muslim students reported some type of bullying, um, for students who, who wear a hijab, 29% said they had been either offensively touched by another student um, or, or somehow, you know, actually physically um, had had some kind of physical bullying as a result of, of wearing the hijab. And 27% of those students also said that they had discrimination from teachers and, and staff. And I actually um, heard about uh, several instances of. of girls saying that they'd had their jobs actually pulled off of their heads. Um, I was at uh, a dinner the other day where they were they they were the, they were presenting, you know, some of the different issues that have been going on in the Muslim community, and they had um, a young girl stand up and explain how she had actually had to pull out of public school and was now being homeschooled because she had been uh, beat up so many times because she wore a hijab. So um, it definitely was a very... Uh,
0: Real thing, hearing hearing that comes from her. Yeah, um, yeah. We certainly don't want to f- have students feel unsafe in school. Um, and and so and now I kind of want to move uh, into another issue which affects uh, students, which is uh, something that you've reported on recently: um, the increase uh, in. Uh, applications uh, for what's been called deferred action for childhood arrivals, uh, a, a, a policy instituted by President Obama, which granted work authorization status and and kind of temporary relief in the United States for uh, people who came into the U.S. at a young age, um, and and you've reported that in San Diego, there's been an outreach to increase. These types of applications for uh, for deferred action from the Filipino community. So, can you tell me kind of a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So, um, there was a there was a recent study from the Migration Policy Institute that um, looked at the numbers that were applying for DACA, and um, they found that um, undocumented Asian youth were much less likely to apply than. Those from countries like Mexico, El Salvador, um, Honduras, Central America in general, and so um, we happen to have a fairly large um, Filipino population here. Part of that is because of the, the affiliation with the Navy and, and the history of that, and um, we've had we've had a, a, a fairly large Filipino community here for a long time. Um, and one of the, the interesting things that I've learned about that community is that because um, in order to get some of the different um, like family-related visas, like an F-4 visa, for example, where you're, you're um, bringing over your family member, but you're not super close-related, so um, you're not prioritized as highly as some of the other family visas. They actually are just now processing people who applied for those visas in the like early to mid-'90s. Um, so there's a really long wait to get a visa, um from, from the Philippines right now for a lot of these folks, and so some of them choose to just wait for their visas over here in an undoc- undocumented status, and they bring their kids and, and whatever, and so those kids end up, end up being undocumented, um, and so there's an organization here called Alliance San Diego that has been trying to put more resources out there with information about programs like DACA um, for these youth. Um, they've been translating a lot of those resources into Tagalog, which is... Um, the, the language of the Philippines. And so they, because they realize that a lot of the, the programming that happens to, to help undocumented immigrants understand, like what their options are and what different things mean in our fairly complex immigration system is uh, first and foremost translated into Spanish. And they recognize that we also have this fairly large population that, that needs different language resources and that sort of thing. So um, that's what's been going on here.
0: From what you've uh, learned and, and people that you've spoken with, what was the um, cause of the aversion to applying for DACA? What, what, was, what was the reluctance within the Filipino community?
1: Sure. Um, there's, there's a couple different things. Um, one really interesting thing was that there's a very... Um, what's the word? <laughs> it's, it's looked down upon to um, talk about your, your status in, in that community. They actually um, have in, a name for undocumented immigrants. They're called TMTs, which is uh, an abbreviation for a Tagalog phrase, which means to keep on hiding. And so the, sort of the idea that you're not supposed to talk about that, you're not supposed to share um, your status because somebody probably helped you get over here in that community. Someone may have helped you get a job without a social security number in that community, you know, and so to, to talk about your status is sort of out the people who helped you as well, and that's, that's frowned upon. And so, um, the idea is to is, is not to reveal yourself um, as an undocumented person. Um, and there's also the fear, you know, like DACA. DACA is something, like you said, that was created by the Obama administration. We have an election coming up in November. We don't know how much longer that program is going to be in place. So. If you raise your hand and say, hey, I'd like to get DACA, I'm an undocumented person, and then it goes away in January, we now have record of you being an undocumented person in this country.
0: So there's a fear of just deportation depending mm-hmm. upon the outcome of the election. Right. Um, that's that's actually uh, interesting because... Um, for many of the undocumented uh immigrants that I've spoken with uh and and maybe that you have there's there's often um a discussion of almost this this community within a community that people from um either different countries or different regions have created communities within um American cities and they um Often only speak their own language, and it's it's uh, and and have almost kind of generated a small economy with stores and businesses and things um, out of fear of of what might happen to them if they come out of the come out of the shadows, so to speak, and 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 make themselves known. Do you think that there is that the sense that you've gotten? From from speaking with with people in, in that community,
1: um, to some extent, yes. I mean, it does seem like a very tight um, knit community that you know they support each other. We've got, uh, and so that's one of the the things that um, Alliance San Diego is actually working through. They're they're pulling in community leaders from that community to try and get their their help and support in getting getting the messaging about DACA out. So I think they're also acknowledging that that community relationship in the way that they're trying to to do this push. And um, I actually spoke with um, a Filipina uh, woman who is now in college and and has DACA, and she said that being an undocumented um, person in that community is like being a minority within a minority. So I thought that was that was interesting.
0: Yeah, um, I, I don't think that's very often discussed uh, in the, in the media of, of, kind of how much you often feel you have to hide about yourself. Um, yeah. All right. I, I just want to um, end with a, a much more general question. Um, you live in and work in San Diego, which is one of the largest border cities in America. Just not necessarily uh, in a specific instance, but from from your reporting, what what is the sense of of the border? I mean, we keep hearing about the wall that that Trump wants to build, uh, this, this massive wall. How have you reported on being a being a city that's that's right next to the border and, and any of the issues that arise because of that?
1: Sure. Um, well, we do actually. In addition to myself, I work on immigration. We also have a, a border reporter, so someone who's more specifically focused on on um, our our border with Mexico. But I did um, I did actually get to go on a tour of the border with um, some border patrol officers recently, and um, they showed me that there are actually already two fairly large and scary-looking fences. At least along a good a good section of our border, which is something that I think has been talked about a little bit, but maybe not um, maybe not fully um, but they did also show me that there are there are places where people try to come to come through that fence um, pretty frequently and they have to have to patch it because people are um, somehow getting through the the metal um, so that was that was definitely um, pretty interesting
0: did you get any kind of opinions or, or from, from the border patrol agents, what did they have to tell you about the border itself?
1: Well, um, you know, they, they were very proud of, of the work that they do and they, you know, they showed me, um, some of the different places where, um, You know, something happened to an agent. They they talked about um, what they called getting rocked, and it took me a little while to figure out, but they were actually talking literally about people throwing rocks at agents from across the first fence. Because the a lot of the agents patrol actually between the two fences. There's the old fence, which is actually created out of um, mats that were used by the military in Vietnam, which I found was was what what they told me, and I thought that was really fascinating. We had recycled these. Um, these landing mats from Vietnam, and, and put them up as a fence, and then, uh, and then we have the second fence, which is metal, and in a lot of places also has um, barbed wire, razor wire, along different parts of it. Um, and so they they drive between between the two fences, and um, you know, or they talked about how you know an an agent was was responding to an incident, and the the roads along there are really curvy and crazy, and so um, in some cases have had issues where their vehicles have have flipped and, and, you know, had tragic incidents in that case, and so they pointed out some of those different places to me. But they, they, I mean, they seemed very proud um, of what they do, and, but they didn't, they didn't seem, um, like, there was, there wasn't animosity towards, towards the other side. Two, two of the officers actually had, had grown up part of their lives in Tijuana, And so, you know, they were very, I think, um, sympathetic to conditions over there, and very, and also very proud of that city. So as we were driving through, they were pointing out some of the the highlights. They they were like, you know, a lot of people when they think of Mexico, they think of like, you know, these conditions, but we want you to see this too. And so, from you know, some of the different hills, because San Diego is very hilly, they were pointing out, look at that building, look at that building, as we were driving, driving along the fence. So, um,
0: yeah. The relationship um, between the Border Patrol agents and and people who are trying to come into this country must be, um, you know, it's something that we can't really understand. But, you know, it's interesting to hear that you're saying that there really is no animosity. It's just kind of they see it as a job that they have to do.
1: Right. Well, I mean, they—they, they, the people who I spoke with were very focused on, you know, we're we're trying to prevent gangs from gang-related activity crossing the border. We're trying to prevent narcotics from crossing the border, um, and but they, to, the, to them, like it seems like that very specific focus, you know. And a lot of times when when people are coming over, you know, they they get in trouble out in the desert and day it's very hot, they can get dehydrated and night it can actually get very cold and they can get hypothermia. So, um, a lot of times, Border Patrol actually has to go on on rescue missions and and help, like they have a whole unit of like medic-related people to help save people who get stuck crossing. So, they're not just trying to catch people, they're also trying to keep people alive. So there's a lot more layers to what
0: they do than I think most people realize as well. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we'll leave it there. Uh, Once again, Kate Morrissey is a reporter on immigration for the San Diego Union Tribune in San Diego, California. Uh, Ms. Morrissey, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. My name is William Minard, and this is The American Immigrant.